Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about resurrectionists or 19th century body snatchers. Please be advised this episode includes mentions and explicit discussion of dissections, necrophilia, grave desecration, explosions, suffocation, putrefaction, serial killers, and of course, death. Now let's get on to the show! So I'm sure we've all had this conversation where you're talking to somebody, maybe someone you know, someone you don't, and the topic of what do you want done with your body after you die comes up, right? Some people want to be shot into space, turned into trees, compressed into little diamonds so you can be fabulous post-mortem. Have you guys ever thought about donating your whole body, not organ donation, the whole thing? For science. Um, For science, yeah. For science. Or who knows, maybe to be plasticized for body worlds. I uh, can't say that appeals to me in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I'm down for, like, organ donation, but I can genuinely say I don't think I've ever talked, or I've ever thought about or talked with anybody about what I want done with my corpse after I die, which is ironic considering this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, that... Somewhat surprises me, because I feel like I have that conversation a lot, but maybe that's just a me thing. But what if I told you that the only reason you could donate your body to science, hypothetically, is due to a lot of body snatching and then serial killers in the 19th century? Oh. That's... What a what a wonderful tale that you're going to lead us on to get from one <laughs> to the other. <laughs> All right, well, this will be a great a great series of facts and half-remembered anecdotes to bring up next time you're talking about body disposition with somebody. So we're going to start off at the very early part of the 19th century. So, you know, 1810s or so, there is an explosion of popularity for surgery and for anatomists and for rich, well-to-do young men to learn to be surgeons and doctors, right? It was the new position of status, or I guess the growing position of status. The problem with that is that at that point, we didn't have a great understanding of human anatomy. And this was due largely to the fact that uh, human dissection was not an easy thing to come by necessarily. This will come up, uh, I think, a lot through the course of this podcast, but up until fairly recently in the long term, Western peoples were not keen on doing anything with their body but burying it, keeping it safe for rapture when they get to join the skeleton army with their whole body intact. <laughs> so there was there was none of this organ donation, whole body donation, cremation was a big fight, right? Having the whole body was really important for the God-fearing masses. So you might ask yourself, where are anatomists getting their corpses? Because they were still getting corpses. It just wasn't keeping up with demand. Anyone want to hazard a guess? 
Might I say graveyards and or cemeteries and or poor people that you kill? Very on the nose for a lot of them. Yes. Prior to that, the only way to legally obtain a corpse was an executed prisoner. And this was due to the Murder Act in 1751. This was put out by the UK Parliament. Uh, So we are talking primarily UK, Scotland, Ireland for this. Though it was happening in America at the time as well. Not quite to the same extent, I don't think. But the Murder Act essentially was a deterrent for violent crimes that would lead to death via double sentencing. So prior to the Murder Act going, hey, you can have this dead prisoner for dissection because they're no longer allowed to be buried... Instead of us drawing and quartering it or gibbeting oh, yeah. the corpse. <laughs> what does that mean? Gibbeting is a a terrible fate for a body in which the body is dipped in tar and then hung in a metal cage in the town square to be picked apart by birds. Oh wow. Gnarly. Brutal. I always I always thought that people were gibbeted while still alive. It, they might have been. And that's why you've got, like, that gnarly scene that's in, like, the beginning of Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Oh, yeah. And, like, that dude is, like, having his eye picked out by a crow. Oof. Yeah, I didn't dig too much into gibbeting as a practice for, a uh, <laughs> fear for my own mental safety. Hmm. But from the few sources that I did look at, it did look like it was a it was a post-mortem punishment. It was a means of humiliating and, you know, discarding the body without burying it. You know, they were like, you cannot join the the skeleton army. (laughs) You've been denied. So that was where they were initially getting corpses. But with all these new students flooding in, the opening of more anatomy schools in London and Edinburgh and Glasgow and all the way through the UK and parts of America, there just, there wasn't enough corpses. What you gonna do when you're out of corpses? You go and get some, Right? So at first, this was something that was being done by students and sometimes instructors. Like many teachers today, they're doing that extra work for the students when the when the governing body won't provide. Right? School won't give you textbooks, you go get your textbooks. School won't give you corpses, you go get corpses on your own. <laughs> you gotta provide your students with the things they need to learn what you're teaching them. Right? Gotta, gotta get, make sure that they are getting the education that they are paying for. Gotta go to the corpse store to buy some corpses. Right? And so this this was going on for, you know, quite a bit. Scotland had a, a really serious problem with students stealing corpses. And here's the thing. Body snatching was not illegal. It's There was no reason prior to this anatomy craze to steal a corpse, except for the slim possibility of necrophilia, which... Fun fact, wasn't illegal in any U.S. state until 1965. Well, I mean, if people aren't going out and stealing bodies, there's no reason to have a law on the law books to tell people to not go out and steal bodies. It seems like a very common sense thing that you wouldn't just go out and do. But once the need arises, you got to meet that need with a law to make it illegal, I guess. So yeah. was there, like, a spike in body snatching in the 1960s that, like, caused it to actually be put into law? I, you would not believe how hard it is to find records about necrophilia law that are not behind paywalled law case studies. <laughs> Interesting. 
Um, I did also learn that in the UK, it wasn't illegal until 2003. Necrophilia? Necrophilia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that sort of thing usually nowadays, even in places where it's not explicitly illegal, would fall under abuse of a corpse laws Mm. and be a problem. But, you know, part of the reason for that is that corpses didn't really belong to anybody, seeing as as their previous owner had vacated the building, so to speak. So they could, there wasn't really a lot that legally could be done to these students. And in some schools, students who couldn't afford the tuition paid their way in corpses. <laughs> so they were like harvesters? Kind of, yeah. They were kind of the, the proto-resurrectionists. And then you had your very bougie anatomists who hired somebody else to do it for them. And or they couldn't buy enough textbooks, so they needed to hire a printer. Hence, we start to get resurrection men also called resurrectionists, and by the course of what they were doing, body snatchers. So So these were considered... Sorry. Go ahead. So this considered a profession? Yes. Not exactly a legal one, but yeah, it became a very popular and a very, very lucrative profession. A lot of the people that were, you know, ending up in this business were previously lab assistants, they were grave diggers, they were laborers. So the average annual amount for a laborer in 1800 was 12 pounds per year. It was 20 pounds by 1850, 30 pounds by 1880. You could get paid up to 10 pounds per corpse. Holy fuck. And you get summers off because there is a body snatching season. (laughs) Well, when students are in school. Also, when putrefaction does not set in quite so quickly. Yeah, so body also Isn't the ground also harder to dig in? I guess so, but that was also when the pickings were good, I guess, because it was slower for bodies to decomp, so they could actually get more for fresher corpses, right? Sometimes if you brought a corpse that was maybe not in great condition, it started to get a little smelly, started leaking, maybe it had been nibbled on, um, depending on how you came upon this corpse, right? You may make four, six pounds versus a relatively fresh, good condition corpse, eight to ten pounds, right? So you're making easily 10 times your previous yearly amount just by stealing corpses. And you might ask yourself, okay, but how? How were they actually stealing corpses? Surely this was a difficult thing, but records seem to show that it only took about half an hour to steal a corpse. So the way that they would do this is they would go out in pairs minimum. One of them would keep watch while the other one dug a hole to the coffin at usually at the head of the coffin. They would pry it open, slip a like a noose or a rope under to snare the corpse other, either under the armpits or around the neck, fish that sucker out of there, and then put the dirt back on, heave that thing off to the, anat- to the anatomist. There was a little bit of time for removing um, clothing, jewelry, any goods that they were with because grave robbing was illegal, but body snatching was not. Hmm. So you could be jailed for stealing somebody's shirt out of the grave, but not necessarily for stealing the shirt while it was still on the corpse. Okay, so are these these body snatchers, are they taking off, like, say, someone's buried with rings and necklaces and stuff like that? Are they taking it off and leaving it in the coffin behind them? Because then they would, if they were to take it, then they would be committing a crime? That seemed to be the logic. If they were caught with the body, it was less legal penalty. Uh, There's various sources that I came across that said that sometimes they would take it and 
hawk it to 19th century equivalent of a pawn shop. But it didn't seem like that was the, the common thing to do, because that was something they could be jailed for. But what do you do if, if the body has gone off? If you didn't get to it fast enough? If it had been out for a bit before burial? In the Diary of a Resurrectionist, which is dated 1811 to 1812, and it's written by an anonymous resurrectionist, it's mentioned that if thing bad, which was the kind of terminology that was used in this, they would pull the teeth and sell them to a dentist to make dentures and then put the thing back. Right. Like, make dentures out of real teeth? Yep. What the... Isn't, that's in that, uh, that's what, uh, Les Miserables, uh, what's her face, starts selling her teeth, uh, oh, uh for her daughter. For oh, Her daughter's Eb- name is Cassette. Eb- is it Ebony? I, I, th- I think so. Yeah, She's she the starts, like, the big, I dreamed a dream. Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Yeah, she starts, like, selling her teeth, uh, and, and, like, her hair. All, she starts selling her body in more ways than one, essentially. Hmm. Uh, while she's still alive. Yeah, interesting. I did not And I imagine know that. also, like, aside from the teeth, the teeth, the teeth, the, um, the teeths, I'm sure, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure that they were taking the teeth, but, like, even if grave robbing was illegal, I'm sure, you know, if they were buried with some coins or something or a pocket watch, I'm sure that that probably went missing. Probably. I don't think there was anybody going, hey, let me just dig up this corpse to see if anything's missing. Yeah, exactly. Right? But this was going on for quite a while. The public was aware of this. Right. right? They, you know, disturbed graves. The anatomists suddenly are flush with corpses that may or may not be familiar, which actually will come up later. Oh, no. Um, And (laughs) people were outraged. Right? There was mobbing. There was rioting. There was at one point a... So in 1831, so this is quite a ways in, this has been going on for at least 20 years. Can't remember exactly what town this is in. But in 1831, there was some boys who were chasing a dog through a town in Scotland. um, And the dog unearthed some arm bones Hmm. out behind a recently opened establishment of one Dr. Andrew Moore? Moore? It's spelled French, but I can't pronounce it. M-O-I-R. And after that, and the discovery of other assorted body parts, a group of up to 10 to 20,000 people showed up and turned into a mob that sacked and burned the building down. Oh, jeez. Right? People were furious. They were like, stop stealing grandma! Well, I imagine it would come with a sense of uh, unease about, well, what's going to happen to me or my loved ones if this phenomenon is still going on and I'm vulnerable to be body snatched after death unwillingly. Exactly. And this was a huge issue. So you can imagine some entrepreneurial types were like, hey, there's a there's a niche in the market that we can get in on. It became a thing to sell anti-resurrectionist products and services. Do you want to have a guess at what some of those things might be? Uh, maybe like a cage that goes in the coffin that surrounds the body to prevent them being pulled out by the noose you talked about? It's it's funny, because that's actually halfway between two 
very real things, one of which is a mort safe, um, which is Scotland specific, and you may have seen these floating around on the internet at some point as zombie cages, because modern audiences mm-hmm. seeing these with no knowledge of resurrectionists imagined that it was to keep something in mm. rather than to keep somebody else from getting in and taking something out. I hate those posts that's like, oh, but what if it's like preventing like vampires or something? And like the people are being like completely serious and it's like, no, like <laughs> people are awful. Just shut up. There's a historical <laughs> fucking vampire for this. Yeah. It's yeah, like, so and you listening. don't even have to fucking think that hard about it to be like, oh, right, this was a thing that was happening. But maybe I'm just biased and bitter. <laughs> I feel like that's fair. So mort safes were these huge, very heavy iron cages that were sometimes built into the ground around the coffin. So on the outside. And these were for rent. So you'd put it around the corpse for... A few weeks, depending on the season, right? And then it'd be dug up and moved to another new fresh corpse. Because they did. They stopped the resurrectionists from getting in. While the corpse was fresh. While the corpse was fresh or useful at all for dissection, right? Because they were like, we don't want to know how living bodies work. So the closer to living, the better. Leaky and whatnot, probably less fun. I imagine the the graves that have fresh... Like that look fresh dug would be prime targets then. Easy to spot that it's a it's a new newly dead. Yeah, exactly. And it probably wasn't hard to troll I I don't know how much obituary writing there was at this point in time, but death wasn't quite so secretive. Hush hush, right? Bodies were kept at home. Edinburgh wasn't yet a huge city. But also, yeah, probably just looking for that fresh-turned dirt. Some of these guys were originally gravediggers. And then uh, that'll hide the, the stealing as well, because, ah, oh, the dirt was already disturbed. Yeah, exactly. So there were, you know, they were trying to post guards in a lot of these places, but guards can be bribed. You also had things like the flip side of the cage within the coffin is the coffin collar. You know how some people will put their dog out in the yard and they don't have a fence so the dog's on a stake and it just goes round and round and round? (laughs) It's like that, but for a corpse. And these were, I think, probably more permanent than the mort safes. But essentially, the deceased was fitted with a collar that was anchored to the bottom of the coffin. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Literally shackled in there. Good luck getting to the skeleton army now, I guess. Um... (laughs) I'm sure some people today are like, well, it's because of vampires. People thought that the, the, the vampires were going to shut up. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. what, uh, like, say 500 years from now, if they dig up, don't have any records of body snatching and that kind of stuff, like in, in the history that they have at that point, coming back and looking at this and seeing a shackled corpse in a coffin that they've dug up. What is going on here? <laughs> right? What sort of plague was plaguing this place? Because you also had, like, mort stones, which were just giant fucking slabs that you put on top of the coffin in the ground to try and stop body snatchers. It didn't work terribly well because the body snatchers would just dig down beside the coffin, pry it open, and pull them out through the side. (laughs) So those ones weren't terribly effective. Um, You also had, like, dead houses or mort houses, which were... 
essentially mausoleums for petri or for putrefaction. So it was like a, a little a little house where you'd store your body until it was no longer useful to an anatomist, and then you'd be buried. I was going to say, that seems like the natural solution is before you even make the body available to the public, just let them start decaying. But I was going to say, maybe there's some cultural reason why the body must be buried and we can't see it. We can't see yeah. it decaying. Yeah, I don't know what exactly the, the reason was. I know that mort houses and dead houses were also used in periods... And in places where the ground gets too hard to bury, hmm. but burial's oh. the standard body disposition, so they store them for the winter, and then once spring hits, get in there. Do they not also do that for, like, above-ground burials, just as far as, um, like, places that have flooding? Like New yes. Orleans? Yeah, New Orleans is a great example, and New Orleans has fascinating... Burial, above ground burial options um, like the oven crypts yeah. but we may have to do an episode on above ground burial in the future because I think they're great but they also do remind me of pizza ovens yes absolutely <laughs> like the, just the door shape don't ruin pizza <laughs> pizza is the, one of the greatest things in my life don't ruin pizza <laughs> pizza is too sacred to be equated to corpses uh, <laughs> So a couple of other options that showed up, there was patent coffins, which were like iron caskets with spring catches that were super difficult to open. There was, some people just took to booby trapping the whole graveyard. Oh, jeez. <laughs> right? They were, they were like, we're going to put broken glass on the top of the walls so they can't come over. There's like spring loaded weaponry. Really? Yeah, and this actually brings me to my favorite anti-resurrectionist product, which is the coffin torpedo. Oh my god. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it was also called like a grave torpedo or a coffin gun. And essentially these were rentable explosives that you rigged a casket with so that if you tried to pry it open, it would go off and blow up. <laughs> going out with a bang. Yeah. The, the thing with this is that if this happened, yes, you'd probably get the resurrectionist, but you do also kind of destroy the corpse. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> oh god, that's that's a hard decision to make. I guess it's the, the people who are doing the burying that are deciding. Maybe someone said, hey, when I, we know this resurrectionist thing is happening. When I die, bury me with a coffin gun. <laughs> right? I'm gonna take those guys with me. <laughs> if I'm going anywhere, I'm not going alone. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, that's that's my favorite, is the idea of there being, like, small spring-loaded turrets inside of the coffin just fucking waiting. But it gives you an idea of kind of the, the pitch of tension that was being reached in Scotland and England and Ireland during this time, where the resurrectionists were just making all the money. And how do you protect grandma from becoming a lab specimen? Would the graveyards and the cemeteries, especially for the more affluent areas of town, would they have actually hired, like, night watchmen to kind of keep an eye out? I'm like, sure, a counter to that is, well, night watchmen can be bribed, but I wonder if there was, you know, somebody who was paid to do that. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if the cemetery or the parish that the graveyard belonged to was the one hiring guards, or if it was... 
families in particular, but it is important to note that body snatching did disproportionately affect poorer populations, right? Who couldn't afford Mm. to have a mort safe or a spring-loaded torpedo added to their coffin to protect them. Speaking of, you've got to, someone's got sirens. They're coming to catch the body snatchers. (laughs) (laughs) They're coming. They're coming. Sorry, Uh, that's me. (laughs) uh Uh-oh. They're coming for me. Sorry, guys. Episode's over. Podcast done. No more episodes. It's been fun. Yeah. Oh, dear. I, (laughs) yeah. So this was, it was becoming a problem. And you might guess that there is a natural progression or a natural end to this kind of economic trade-off. And that is how we come to Burke and Hare, who are also known for committing the Westport murders or the Body Snatcher murders. And so this is a little bit of like a true crime tangent, but it is important to this. So William Burke and William Hare, both Williams, both Irish, were... Relatively young men, Hare owned a boarding house with his wife called Tanner's Close in one of the very poor areas of Edinburgh. Both men were married. Not to each other, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly, actually. So Burke had been married back in Ireland, had two kids, but after a dispute about land and money with his father-in-law, he up and abandoned his family and went off to Scotland where he found work as a cobbler. Hare had been a tenant at the boarding house when Margaret Hare, or I can't remember her main name, unfortunately. Most texts refer to her just as Margaret. Um, She was actually married to somebody else. And after a dispute there, because Hare was like, ah, but I love your wife. Hare was kicked out. The husband died shortly after, and he moved back in and was like, hey, I heard you're single, and did end up marrying Margaret, so he became the owner of Tanner's Close. Did the husband die under mysterious circumstances? (laughs) Unfortunately, there was no note of that, but I am very curious, given the scant records of what kind of people Burke and Hare were. Because Burke was described as being a relatively good-looking, kind of normal level of charismatic kind of person. He was the smooth talker. He was the one who did the initial luring of victims. Hare, on the other hand, is described as hideous and horrible. As a brute, like, just a terrible person all around. But the four of them got on great. Burke, Hare, Margaret, and then Helen McDougal, who was Burke's wife. Drinking buddies, the whole thing. They were all living in Tanner's clothes. One of the tenants at... Tanner's clothes. I keep forgetting the names. Ridiculous. <laughs> I've listened to this story so many times today. But essentially, a an older tenant that was staying there, he was a pensioner, died of dropsy with rent still owing. And they were like, well, shit. Hare's not a guy to let a debt go. And it's disputed which of them suggested it, but they decided that they were going to take the corpse and they were going to sell it to one of these fancy anatomists at the University of Edinburgh. At the anatomy school there. So when the parish came to deliver a coffin, to put the corpse in, and then to take it away, they broke back into the coffin, stole the body and hid it under a bed, put some wood back in the coffin, and let that go off to be buried. So somewhere there's just a box full of wood where an old man should be. They then took the body, headed off to the university, and started asking after Dr. Alexander Monroe. 
I learned today that there was three generations of Alexander Monroe who held the exact same position at the University of Edinburgh for about 150 years. Dedication. I, to me, it sounds like a weak cover story for someone who's immortal. But <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. At least he wasn't stuck behind a mort safe wearing a coffin collar. Um, <laughs> so they go asking for Monroe because he's the big wig. And some of the students they talk to actually direct him towards Dr. Knox. So Dr. Knox was a well-respected anatomist. He ran a very small sort of anatomy school in Edinburgh. So they took the body there, met up with him. He paid them, I think, eight pounds for the first corpse. And as he was, as they were leaving, he made the mistake of telling them that, that he would look forward to meeting them again under similar circumstances. Oh, dear. Oh, horse. <laughs> this was a fatal mistake for 15 people, apparently. So Burke and Hare went on to murder at least 15 people in 10 months. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so most of these victims were lured back to Tanner's clothes. They were usually people who were kind of out on their luck. People who wouldn't, quote, unquote, be missed. Mm -hmm. They would then ply them with so much whiskey they were incoherent, and then they would suffocate them or smother them. So this was one of them laying on the chest to force all the air out and stop them from struggling, and the other one would block the airwaves. Initially, this was done with a pillow. Later, it was done just with a hand pinching the nose and covering the mouth, and this actually became known as burking. Yikes. Yeah, it became a verb to, to burk someone was to suffocate them in this very particular way. They actually had they had a big blowout several months in, in which Burke had gone to visit the MacDougals with his wife, and when he came back, Hare was in fancy new digs, but he knew that his friend did not have the money for that when he left. He accused him of doing a murder while he was away. <laughs> How dare you murder without me? How dare you? Hare was like, no, nah, man. No, nah, not without you. However, Burke was like, I'm a check. And so he went and talked to the assistant at Dr. Knox's office who said, yeah, no, your bud came by with a body. They had a massive blowout. Like they went into a physical brawl and then didn't talk to each other for like three months. So out of this 10 months, there was a three month lull where they were just mad at each other. <laughs> so <laughs> McDougal and Burke did not move back into Tanner's clothes. But Burke and Hare did go back to murdering. And they made, they were starting to get cocky. They made a couple of mistakes. They murdered a very well-known kind of homeless man who was known for giving performances and for having a very distinct walk due to a deformation of one of his feet. And when, you know, when Burke and Hare brought this guy in, the assistant was like, huh, is it? I, this is, I know this guy. I and up, in, up until this point, right, Knox had not asked or mentioned to anyone that he suspected that he knew where these bodies were coming from. Even though the assistants were like, these bodies are kind of warm. <laughs> Still. Oh my god. Suspicious? Jesus. But here's the most condemning thing, is that Knox reportedly 
upon receiving this corpse, even though he had other corpses that were in line to go to dissection, was like, no, we're going to do this one first. And he removed the feet and the head of the corpse, the two defining features of this young man, which tells you a lot about his suspicions about where this corpse had come from. So, so is that him trying to cover his own ass, essentially? I, that's, that seems to be the conjecture for most sources that I read, is that they were like, he knew that this was foul play. He knew that this guy had been murdered. So he was giving himself plausible deniability by removing the evidence. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, in retrospect, that makes you look even more guilty. Like, Right? That's the right? first thing that came to my mind. So, I mean... Yeah, exactly. They just didn't have quite the same level of, like, forensic identification, right? And somehow, this is not what got Burke and Hare caught, right? They murdered a couple more. They murdered a relatively young sex worker, Mary Patterson. And when she was brought in, the assistant was like, no, I definitely know this one. I know her. I saw her recently. I don't know what it was about Mary Patterson, but Dr. Knox kept her... Kept her um, preserved in whiskey for over three months before she was dissected. Why? Uh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I don't know. She was a relatively young woman. Uh, so I don't know if it was just... I don't know if it's an anonymous thing. Was whiskey what they usually used? Like, I don't know a lot about what was used as a preservation technique at the time, but I do know that whiskey was what Burke and Hare were imbibing their victims with so there's a little right. bit of sick irony there right um i did see some reports that said she was in formaldehyde so it's it's not totally set in stone right it's part of the thing with history is that we can never know quite all of the details things get lost they fall through the cracks they decay over time but he kept her preserved for three months after that what finally was the undoing of burke and Hare was they had they were Chilling at Burke and McDougal's place, the hares came over, and there was another couple staying at the same boarding house as Burke, the Greys. And they had seen them hanging out with this woman and getting quite tipsy, and Burke paid them to go and stay at Hare's boarding house. While they were gone, uh, Burke and Hare did what they do, and they burked this poor woman and tried to hide her in some hay. In oh. the room. Mrs. Gray came back to try and get some of their possessions and was like, huh, hmm, why won't you let me back into the room? So when Burke and Hare were out of the room for a moment, she stole in and, of course, found the body. Immediately went to the police, even though they had tried to bribe her not to. Police came back, they had taken the body to Knox. Already, they followed up with Knox. Found out that there was a bunch of bodies. Bing, bang, boom, these boys are arrested. Problem is that they're giving super conflicting testimony. They can't even keep their own stories straight, let alone a coherent group narrative. And the authorities are like, okay, we've got bodies, but we're not sure that we can get a conviction on these guys. And they have all four of them in custody. They have Margaret and Helen as well. They also brought in Dr. Knox and chatted with him. And then we're like, nah, he had nothing to do with it and let him go. <laughs> I the the amount of things where I'm like, man, these were not good investigators. So not what they good did investigators is investigators or corruption, or corruption. 
Isn't that so, like with most, even like re- hearing about like true crime series today, it's not that the the serial killers were particularly tricky or anything. It's just that <laughs> the investigators were incompetent. Yeah, Isn't losing that a paperwork. Common theme? Losing paperwork, compromising evidence, the whole shebang. Yeah. So what they decided to do was they offered Hare immunity to testify against Burke. And from what we know, Hare was the one who was like, I'm gonna go do a murder on my own. Right? I think he was probably the worst of the two. Not that there's anything redeemable about these men. But Hare very quickly just turned tails and sold out his buddy wholesale. Was like, yeah, nope, definitely him. These were his suggestions. Absolutely threw him under the bus. And so the wives managed to get off very easily, though they were both mobbed out of Scotland. Um, They had to flee like under disguises and in police caravans and (laughs) because the public saw them just as guilty. Hare was released because he had been promised immunity. He had to use a disguise. He also got mobbed. But what became of him is unknown, as is with the women. Burke, however, was found totally guilty. They, the persecution claimed to have up to 55 witnesses to testify against Burke in court. And the trial ran all in one go for over 24 hours. Oh my god. Because they were worried about losing any momentum in getting this conviction. Of course, he came back guilty. And Burke was sentenced to hang and then be publicly dissected and then anatomized and preserved for posterity. Aha, uh-huh, so fitting. Ironic. Right? The irony of this. There was insane numbers of people that showed up to his hanging. It was like 25,000 people. And they were chanting for hair to be hung as well. As Burke was going through the death throes, having been dropped, they would cheer every time there was a little squirm that brought him closer to death. Like, there was not a remorseful person out there. <laughs> well, he was the... to a degree, like, a serial killer, so... Yeah. Yeah, It's there's estimates that they may have killed up to 30 people. Mm-hmm. But 15 for sure. 15 and that's not... is still a lot of people. Yeah. It's still a lot. That's in a 10-month window. That's a serial killer by any measure of the word. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. They had an MO. They had, you know, procedures. They were getting cocky. They had the whole shebang. And Dr. Knox did not get off scot-free either. He was shamed and ostracized out of the medical community. He was forced to leave Edinburgh. There were people outside his, like, outside of his home build, burning effigies of him and demanding that he also be hung and held responsible. People were furious about all this. They were like, this has gone on too long. Leave Grandma alone. Uh, <laughs> I say Grandma, but, like, resurrectionists were also stealing children. Yeah, just anybody and anything they could get their hands on. Unfortunately, there aren't any, um, like, exact records of body snatching, as far as I can tell, because it was a criminal profession. But returning to to poor Burke and his demise and thereafter, uh, he was then publicly dissected by Dr. Alexander Monroe. Of course. The irony. There were so many people trying to get into the operating theater to witness the dissection that a riot broke out. And they were having to bring people through in, like, groups of 50 at a time. And the dissection took a few hours, but... (laughs) 
Ah, what part did you see? Oh, I got to see the liver removed. What did you get to see? Oh, I got to see the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, I think they said that it was up to like 30,000 people showed up to that. Oh my God. So more more people. people, hanging. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then he was sent to the University of Edinburgh's medical school to be skeletonized. And some of his skin was used to make a wallet or calling card case. What? And fun fact, you can still visit Burke in Edinburgh because his skeleton is still there. Where is it? It's in the Medical History Museum at the University of Edinburgh. Oh. I mean, if you're going to have a skeleton in the Medical History Museum in Edinburgh. (laughs) Right? Uh, But when the judge sentenced him, he said something along the lines of, you know, if we ever get to the point where we are saving skeletons for posterity and for anatomy's sake, then I hope yours is among them to be, you know, to be a reminder of your crimes. Promise fulfilled. Right? I have a, a bit of an aside on that note as far as, like, preserving skeletons and things. So I was an anthropology student, and so I... Bones were a part of my degree. Uh, I didn't really do all that well in osteology, so don't come for me. But uh, there are actual still skeletons that if you have the money, you can go and buy skulls and human skulls and things on the internet. And I just yes. ask that anybody who is looking to do that keeps in mind, you know what, people have their own ethics, whether it's right or not to own a human skull. But keep in mind that a lot of the ones for sale on the internet come from people who were murdered in various countries around the world who didn't who didn't necessarily want their remains on display and especially i think that's something that's really important to just kind of bring up as like an aside to the whole burke thing burke was an awful person who i'm not going to cast judgment it's not my place (laughs) to cast judgment on a 19th or uh, 19th century serial killer but just if like i'm a weird person i have lots of little animal bones and things in my home but if you're collecting human remains, please be aware that it usually came from somebody who was in this similar situation to a lot of Burke and Hare's victims. They're generally not very well off in countries around the world where this kind of thing can kind of go on without people necessarily noticing or being able to take action against it. So to a degree, body snatching is still kind of a thing because universities in Canada and the United States and England need samples and they have a lot of these like anthropology labs and things have gotten way better about them but some of them still have human specimens that came from very 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 sketchy sources so just if you're listening to this podcast you're probably like you know a little bit morbidly curious and you might be into like collecting bones and things so I just please beg of you keep that in mind don't buy human remains off the internet. Like, if your friend is dying and wants to give you... Or, like, if they get their leg amputated and you want their leg bone, fucking go for it. But just, you know, don't don't tie into that awful, awful framework and system of abuse. Yeah, That's we try not to... We try not to own people. Uh, yeah. Alive or otherwise. That's my spiel. Body snatching is still sort of a thing. It is. And actually, one of the things that came up was... A series of crimes that took place in 1992 in Colombia, uh, in Barranquilla, 
I think is how it's pronounced. I'm, I'm sorry I did not check ahead of time. But in 1992, you know, Colombia being torn apart by guerrilla warfare, corruption in the government, lots of conflict going on, and a lot of very disparate economic positions. And Colombia doesn't have a great, or didn't, I don't know what the state is now. I'm sorry, I don't know a lot about Colombia. But the recycling systems weren't really in existence. So a lot of very poor folks were making a living off of garbage picking. And there was a period of time in which police and other authority-based groups would do social cleansing, quote-unquote, of indigent populations and would sell them to the Free University of Berenquila. However, in 1992, a failed attempt to essentially Birkin hair, one Oscar Rafael Hernandez, backfired horribly. Security guards from the university had gotten into this gambit, Birkin hair style, because they can make up to $200 per corpse, had started luring people who were recyclers, as, they're, as they call themselves, from where they were to the university to, you know, pick up cardboard boxes, pick up other recycling sort of thing, and then they would be clubbed, smothered, and given to the university. Uh, 14 guards were arrested in connection with it. There was some uh, not very convincing statements from the head of the university, who was like, we got these legally from this place. And that place was like, um, no, they did not. They didn't get any corpses from us for at least two years. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem that anybody has actually been tried and convicted at all in connection with this. And they're not totally sure how many people were killed, but they did find, I believe, 32 or 22 bodies that had been clubbed and smothered. Okay, so the security chief at the Free University of Berenquila says he murdered 50 people to supply the medical school. Wow. So uh, still very much going on in the world today. Yeah, this is very much going on. You know, there there was lots of controversy and there still is lots of controversy around body works and other body works type ripoffs um, with the plasticized bodies. A lot of those cadavers were not donated, right? So it, it is still an ongoing problem and not everybody has the option, like we said, to get, you know, explosives or cages or to have somebody booby trap their graveyard because they aren't going to a graveyard. They aren't going into graves to be stolen from. There's systems of abuse in place that are taking a respectful death away from people. So, a very important aside, and also very related to the topic. Much appreciated. Um, you see human rain remains on display, think of where they came from instead of just taking things at face value. Even if it's from a reputable, air quote, reputable institution, such as a museum or a university. Museums are full of stuff they should not have. That is like a whole nother episode. Oh, yeah. Don't so. trust your governments, kids. <laughs> and on that, let's return to the government in the 1830s, where the government was finally like, all right, the body snatching has reached a problem level that we have to deal with now. And so this led to the Anatomy Act of 1832. And what this did is it freed up corpses from hospitals workhouses, and prisons for unclaimed bodies to go to anatomists, essentially, as well as making it possible for people to donate their bodies wholesale if they wanted to. 
Body snatching of the resurrectionist kind did continue for a while. It was a real problem in places like Aberdeen, where students were doing it kind of as like a hazing thing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, not cool, kids. Do not steal bodies just because your friends say it's cool. Body snatching is bad. Don't snatch bodies. So the fact that you can donate your body nowadays comes from this period of time where there wasn't enough bodies for anatomists to appease their students. And so advantage was taken of the recently deceased, as well as people who had less connections, less money, who were less privileged. Um, which was also a criticism of the Anatomy Act, because it did allow unclaimed bodies from these places to be taken, right? These were usually people who were too poor to have a doctor come to them at home, so they had to go to the hospital, or if they were poor enough to end up in a workhouse, they probably couldn't afford a burial anyways. So it did disproportionately affect poor populations. Hopefully things have improved somewhat. Some remnants of the Anatomy Act are still in place, such as having a licensed person overseeing the obtaining and dissection of corpses to make sure that it is respectful and thorough and all that fun stuff. That's still preserved, I believe, in Scotland in a set position. There isn't a ton of information about the Anatomy Act that I could find relatively shortly because I am a horrible procrastinator. And if you give me more time to do something, I will take that more time to do the same thing. Uh, so apologies there. But if you'd like to learn more about body snatching, there is a blog as well as a podcast called Digging Up 1800, which covers a lot of these topics, including Burke and Hare, as well as other smaller um, instances. And if you're interested in, you know, what could become of your body now as a result of body donation, the book Stiff by Mary Roach is all about the curious lives of cadavers and is actually where I kind of got the inspiration for doing this episode and kind of digging more into the meat of it. Pun intended. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> well, this isn't a cannibalism episode, but... I didn't say you're eating the meat after digging into it. True. But is it a mortals it. episode if we don't mention cannibalism? There's hey, been I didn't few. talk about eating people. I didn't even talk about eating animals in the last episode, so... You could argue... You could even argue that the last episode was vegan. <laughs> You heard it here. That's if you right. have vegan friends that you need to recommend this to, send them to the vegan episode first. <laughs> it's interesting that we talk about this subject, or you're talking about this subject, Mariah. And now that you've gone through it, it reminds me, there was a show I watched a couple of years ago, and I think I may have mentioned this previously, but I'll mention it regardless. Um, I watched it on Netflix. It's called The Frankenstein Chronicles. And it's ah. Sean Bean set in, I believe, England in that time period, and it covers some of the stuff in a more fantastical way. Fascinating. But it was, yeah, it was a really fascinating watch um, just to see all this stuff, and I didn't realize how much of it was based in history, somewhat accurate history. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if Mary Shelley took any sort of inspiration from kind of this world of body snatching, right? Because previously, some of the specimens they were getting were people like, hey, I chopped off my leg, give me 32 pence for it. And basically people exchanging, you know, a lopped off limb for beer money, which actually did happen in Rochester, New York at one point. But yeah, and there's lots of fictionalized accounts, particularly of the Birkin Hare storyline, less about resurrectionists in particular, but there's lots of fodder to be taken for fiction and for sensationalization, which was actually happening at the time, too, right? The news stories were running wild, which 
probably added to the fervor pitch uh, socially. Oh, I forgot to mention as well. So in terms of how many resurrectionists were being employed by these anatomy schools, in eight, by 1828, um, London's anatomy schools employed 10 full-time resurrectionists and about 200 part-time body snatchers during the dissection season, which runs October to May. Oh, wow. Yep. So one gang of six to seven resurrectionists in one year dug up 312 corpses. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. Boy. <laughs> it was a, how much would I have to pay you to go dig up a corpse? I don't think there's enough money. I mean, I was an archaeologist, so. True. You know, if someone offers you more than 10 times your annual wage. Uh, where's the shovel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it... I'm, I'm a very easy person to be bought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of these people, right? You're only making 12 pounds a year. It's not a lot, right? And with the the kind of social stratification then and now, right? That's that's damn good money, mm-hmm. right? If you're already in a grave digging profession, if you're already doing petty crime, probably not a far leap to be like, yeah, I'll tote off a corpse. Yeah. And corpses weren't kind of the sanitary kept away things that they are now, right? I think people were a lot more familiar with death being you know, in the home and in the face and in the community. I actually take back what I said before. I mean, like, I'm down, like I said, like, I'm down to, like, dig up bones and stuff. But I think if something was... I have a friend who's really into forensic anthropology. She went to school for it. And I actually know someone else who's, like, a coroner. Like, that's just the circle of people that I've become acquainted with. When are we getting them on for interviews? (laughs) And, um, you know, like, that was something I could never do because I'm, like, I'm interested in, like, taphonomy and stuff. But I think if, essentially, if there's still wet bits, I'm not interested. Mm. But if they're, like, I'm into the dusty corpses, you know? I like my corpses dry. Yeah, I like my corpses, like, beef jerky, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And at that point, they don't have any uh, use to the anatomists anymore, so. Right. Yeah, unless they're, like, strictly into bones, so. (laughs) Working for the bone doctor. Bone doctor. Yeah, and I mean, I'm making light of this because it is kind of interesting and it feels fictionalized. But, right, these were real people that were being, that were being stolen, right? These were families affected by having their recently deceased then taken and and having their bodies desecrated, right? Used... Mm -hmm without anybody's permission as part of an economic exchange for these rich college kids or rich and corpse college kids, I guess, in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's also just to like kind of draw the distinction between archaeology and grave robbers. You know, archaeologists are going in with a set of ethics in mind. They're not going to dig anywhere or treat remains in any sort of disrespectful way. At least, I think any educated archaeologist like that's gone through, you know, if you find remains, there is like a set of protocols that you go through, especially if you didn't intend to find remains. Surprise! Yeah, because, you know, sometimes you don't always expect to find remains. Like my absolute favorite place on Earth, Vindolanda. A little Roman fort up in uh, Northumberland, England, and they found, unfortunately, a little girl under what was originally the floor of a centurion's house, and they were not expecting to find remains. 
because they were nowhere near where the suspected graveyard was. And especially, like, if you consider mass graves of, I say modern day, but, you know, 30 years ago, I think the the Rwandan genocide, there's been archaeological excavations, like, intentionally to essentially pull out the bodies and lay them properly to rest instead of in a mass grave. So... Yeah, it wasn't just to make my, a quick buck. Yeah, that's my that's my archaeology disclaimer between the difference between a, a grave robber and a and a an archaeologist. Yeah, exactly. Respect. Archaeologists are not ethics resurrectionists. Yes. yes. So I think that brings us kind of to the end of resurrectionists. Of course, you know, body snatching may come up again in other contexts. So keep in mind. But next time somebody mentions body donation, now you have some fun facts to share with them. And uh, thank you so much for listening and uh, joining us on this morbid learning quest that we're on. I'm a death wizard and I'm on a death learning quest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. The the best new class in D&D. The death Death wizard. The necro wizard. With his buddy, the necrobotanist, who's just a druid who's been tricked into resurrecting his friend all the time. Dancing skeleton <laughs> army. <laughs> Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Death wizard! Death wizard! Death wizard! (laughs) It's like Um. a band name.